At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about impeachment. The politics may be debatable, but Congress's duty is clear. That's what Joshua Holland says. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also later in the show, we'll take a trip back to the darkest days of the Cold War, when muckraking journalists, independent Marxists, trade union rebels, freedom riders, beatniks, and peace protesters all found a home at America's oldest weekly, The Nation magazine. That was the work of a great editor who was also a great historian, Carrie McWilliams. Peter Richardson will explain his biography of Kerry McWilliams is out now. But first, Joe Biden made his first live campaign appearance on Monday before a white working class audience in Pittsburgh. He's way ahead in the national polls, which show he would beat Trump if the election were held right now by something like six or seven points. For comment and analysis, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for the nation. She's also political analyst at CNN. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, you wrote at The Nation that his first campaign event showed that he doesn't care much about his reputation for being too close to corporate America. He did a big fundraiser with uh, executives from Comcast uh, and other big corporations even before he had his public launch. I don't think that's a great look for uh, the person who wants to be the Democratic nominee, but he did, and it and it paid off because he's got to he got to report some good fundraising numbers, and you know, sad to say, that's important um, to people and uh, is a measure of the health of your candidacy. He actually raised around six million dollars, which was very you know surprising people, which it was good, but uh, you know has has many fewer individual donors and small donors than Bernie Sanders, obviously, but also than Kamala Harris and and, and Beto O'Rourke. The logic of Biden's candidacy is that he can win back the white working class men in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, uh, the guys who switched from Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016. That's why Biden is starting in Pennsylvania. Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, asked this week whether Biden and the party members who support him are focusing too heavily on those white working class older men. 
and not enough on the party's faithful on and on new voters. Blow wrote, we need to question why the presence of the white male elder seems to ease anxiety among these white voters. What do you think about that argument? I think it's a great argument. It's something that we've been fighting about on the left since Hillary Clinton lost, really. To some extent, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's a cornerstone of Bernie Sanders' appeal as well. You know, he's he's really uh, doing so much better this time around in terms of dealing with, with racial issues and the primacy of racism and the fact that universal economic programs won't necessarily deal with our legacy of white supremacy. He's doing much better, but he, he too often often talks as if the, the real test of a candidate is whether he, and, you know, interestingly, it's always a he, uh, can appeal to those, those guys, you know, those guys in the union hall or those, those guys in their, in their trucks. And the thing about Biden that makes him dangerous, John, or, or, or makes him strong, depending on your point of view, is that, yes, he's doing that. But the, the thing that gives him real credibility at this point is that for lots of different reasons, including the fact that he was Obama's vice president, he does fairly well in polling, very well with older black voters. And I think older black women and black women generally are the backbone of the Democratic Party, the most the party's most reliable electorate. And the fact that Biden has some appeal to them is what makes him more dangerous to his rivals, let's put it that way. And, you know, the folks who are calling him electable, it's not just his appeal to the firefighters that he debuted with on Monday. It's his, it's his appeal to black voters and older black voters who are, who are frequent voters. Interesting. And it's going to be challenging for the folks who are challenging him. Why do you think the front runners in the Democratic primary are, are all men right now? There are more women voters than men. And women have been the base of the Democratic Party for decades, especially young women and women of color. But if you add up right now the poll numbers for Biden, Bernie, and Beto, together they have about 40%. Kamala Harris has about 8 Elizabeth Warren has about 5 Why is this? I think one factor, honestly, is the enduring dominance of white men among both the political reporter class and the pundit class. They are looking for what's new and different. And for them, for example, first Beto O'Rourke and then Mayor Pete Buttigieg, as, 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 we, as we both know, has kind of scratched their itch. And strangely to me, they're not as intrigued by, let's just say, Elizabeth Warren's transformation from Republican to progressive Democrat, by her struggles as a single mom, the stories of Kirsten Gillibrand that we've discussed running in a, in, first in a red district and then becoming a champion of immigrant rights and proponent of gun safety, Kamala Harris uh, with a biracial background and uh, interesting, very controversial background as a prosecutor. I don't know why, John, those stories don't seem to be as dramatic and compelling to the men, my, my beloved male colleagues on the campaign trail, um, who, who have found, 
you know, electability in in, uh, Biden as well as Bernie and uh, courage and new blood in Beto and Mayor Pete. Uh, And and I should add, you know, men of color like Julian Castro, uh, also like Mayor Pete, uh, a red state mayor, but Latino, and Cory Booker, uh, uh, one of our few black senators, uh, former mayor of Newark, New Jersey, their stories are, are somehow not as compelling either. I'm not saying it's racism. I'm not saying it's sexism. But as long as we have uh, this problem of representation in media, we're going to get phenomena like this. This is who's defining who's interesting, and this is who's defining who's electable. On the electability question, how important do you think is the factor of people being gun-shy about running a woman candidate after Hillary's defeat? The, the assumption that women would vote for a woman turned out not to be right. There was that horrible figure, 53% of white women voters voted for Trump. How important do you think is that in defining electability this time around? I think, unfortunately, it's a big factor, and it's a factor for women, too. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we say it, the more we fear it, the more we, you know, make sure that it comes true. So I'm not going to say that 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 worry isn't one of mine. I mean, it is one of my worries. And nonetheless, I will almost certainly vote for a woman in this primary. But but certainly, it's out there. I'm also guilty right now in our conversation of wringing my hands, my proverbial hands, a little bit too much. We haven't had any debates yet. We have a long time in in this race. And we've got to say, even though it's our job and we want people to be paying attention, and certainly your audience is paying attention, most American voters aren't. We have this little preliminary primary for the press corps but a lot of what we think winds up not being true. And so I comfort myself with my own ability to be wrong so many times. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that comforts our our listeners. Uh, It's a wonderful thing. One of the many arguments against Biden is that the Democratic candidates ought to be focusing less on the so-called party faithful and more on energizing new voters, expanding the base of the Democratic Party, recruiting young people, especially young people of color, young women. Turnout is what the Democrats really should focus on. And let's not forget that four and a half million people who voted for Obama in 2012 stayed home in 2016, did not vote for Hillary. And that was a terrible defeat. And we're told more than a third of those people were black. Of course, voter suppression was was part of that. But it does seem like Biden is not going to focus on recruiting young new voters and expanding the base. He's interested in restoring the party faithful to their to their historic role. Well, to be fair to him, he hasn't totally begun. Uh, and I, I think he, if he were here with us, would say we're wrong, right? I think he would say he's he's going to get around to it. There were rumors that he was going to go to Charlottesville and center the experience of Charlottesville to launch his campaign. And even as somebody who has doubts about his running, frankly, has wished openly and publicly that he would not run uh, and that maybe he would, uh, you know, endorse one of one of the women or one of the more innovative candidacies. 
I thought that was that was courageous and that was interesting. But then he didn't do it. What he did do was launch with a video with, that mentioned that talked. I should be fair, talked a lot about Charlottesville, but then he actually launched in Pittsburgh with a bunch of uh, firefighters and other white male unionists, mostly white male. And so I, I think he thinks he's going to try to do that, but I don't know that he knows how. He or and or his people, not sure who, did something incredibly ham-handed, so to speak, when they floated the idea that Stacey Abrams, who we've talked about before, might, instead of running for her own office might want to run as his vice president. And it turned out that she wasn't interested and she really didn't appreciate having her name floated like that. There are lots of people who are trying to float the idea of Kamala Harris as his vice president, even though she elected to run on her own. So there are signs that he knows he has to do that. What we don't have so far are signs that he knows how to do that. And what do you think about what people call the creepy Joe factor, this history of treatment of women that involves, you know, nuzzling, smelling their hair, rubbing noses with them. There's uh, these videos online which are really pretty disturbing. I think it's a big factor, and he has not yet even apologized for it. We'll see. I mean, I, I you know, he seems to be keeping... Uh, respecting women's personal space better as in his in his public rollout, but you know this is not uh, it's not a joke. And I I confess to having seen some of those videos you know a few years ago, and kind of chuckling because people there are so many instances of it. People made kind of highlight reels of, of quote Joe being Joe, but there's but there's something fundamental about the fact that he still doesn't quite get it in terms of. He doesn't apologize, and he also, in his first public appearance after these issues became a public problem for him, he made jokes about it. He made jokes about asking people for permission, and the people were men. LOL. That's so funny, Joe. I, I think that it, it, it's going to continue to dog him because it raises questions about whether he understands, even though he has a wife, a wonderful wife, wonderful sister, wonderful daughters, he he should know how much women are hamstrung by having to put up with that and be diminished by that, frankly, and, and be secondary people in public spaces because of that. Uh, and the fact that, that he's had a hard time reckoning with it is, is I think, really a problem for him. But we're going to see. It's a long way to November of 2020. And I, I root for him to get better, quite honestly. And every interview we do between now and then, I will have to uh, add the disclaimer that I will vote for the nominee. I, I will. But we've got to be about vetting and we've got to be about really seeing what people are doing as they take their first steps on the campaign trail. And Joe Biden is still centering older white men. And I think that's a problem. Joan Walsh. You can read her at thenation.com, where her piece is titled, Good Luck, Joe Biden, You'll Need It. Joan, I'm sure we'll be coming back to you many times on this and related questions. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, Al. I look forward to it. Next 
Next up, we're still thinking about the Mueller report. Although the special counsel did not find evidence of conspiracy between Trump and the Russians, he did find a lot of evidence of obstruction of justice. He looked at 10 separate acts and found that eight of them satisfied the Justice Department's three criteria for charging someone with a crime. Mueller didn't do that because of that Justice Department legal opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted for a crime. But Mueller did make it clear that Congress can charge a president with obstruction of justice. The question is, should they? For comment and analysis, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a regular contributor to The Nation. Joshua, welcome back. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. A lot of our friends say there's no point in impeachment hearings since the Senate will never convict. They say the Democrats should focus instead on the bread and butter issues that voters really care about, health care, higher wages, free college tuition. That's the way to defeat Trump, not with impeachment hearings. What do you say? The first thing that I think is really important to understand is that this isn't strictly about the Mueller report. The third article of impeachment against Richard Nixon was for refusing to provide materials to congressional oversight committees that had um, given them lawful subpoenas. So when we're talking about this, I don't think that we should consider this in isolation as a response to the Mueller report. I think that what we have to understand is that since the Mueller report came out with Democrats signaling that they're wary of impeachment, Trump has increased his lawlessness. He has ordered multiple officials to break the law. He told his nominee for the head of, of DHS that if he violated the law in keeping refugees out, he would pardon him. He's instructed his Treasury secretary to violate clear black letter law about handing over his tax returns to uh, the appropriate congressional committees. What we have to think about is that impunity always breeds more lawlessness. And th this is the thing, we're not dealing just with what happened as Trump clearly tried to obstruct justice with the Russia Gate investigation. We have to look at what's happening now. And really, there are not a lot of good options available. Let's talk about what the Mueller report actually says about obstruction of justice of the Russia Gate investigation. What is the case that Mueller made? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, they looked at 10 apparent instances of, 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 of obstruction of justice. And I should clarify, these weren't just instances, these were also uh, fact patterns. So they looked at a lot of actions that the president took to derail the investigation, to get people to give false testimony to Congress, to mislead the public, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously, some of these were done in plain sight. He fired his former F FBI director, Comey, and, and told Lester Holt that it was for the because of, of Russia. And what the special counsel said is that their declension, their decision not to prosecute was not a typical declension because he is the president of the United States. And I think that Robert Mueller made it very clear that he understood his role to be fact-finding, establishing a, a, a factual record, and that it is Congress's constitutional role to determine how to respond to the president's lawlessness. 
What about the argument made by some of our friends that beginning impeachment proceedings is playing into Trump's hands? He will argue that Mueller said there was no collusion and that means Trump is right and the Democrats are just harassing him. It's a mistake, according to this argument, to make it all about Trump. That's the way he likes it. He's shown he's very good at playing that game. And it's really much more effective for Democrats to focus on what they will do if they win in 2020. I would respond to that in a a couple of ways. First of all, there has been a very clear pattern when we are talking about Trump's abuses of power, his ratings drop to the bottom of the kind of range in which they've bounced around for two and a half years. I would also point out that, you know, I, I don't really agree with the premise that it's one or the other. I think that the presidential candidates should absolutely be talking about their agendas for, you know, making people's lives better. Meanwhile, in Congress, you can be holding hearings that damage the president potentially that have the potential to damage the president. And those things can happen simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive at all. Finally, I would say that it's important to understand that millions and millions of people do not know what Robert Mueller found because they're viewing the report through their preferred media outlets. If you watch Fox News, you think that it was total exoneration. There's no questions anymore. And I think that Nancy Pelosi was right when she said that Democrats could gain the same information in regular congressional hearings as they would in an impeachment inquiry or impeachment hearings. And I think that what she doesn't understand is that the idea that we need spectacle to break through all of the noise. The difference is that if you put the word impeachment in front of that hearing, it might be that you're calling the same witnesses, But instead of having, you know, political nerds, political junkies tune in, you will have must-see TV, all of the cable networks would carry it live, and tens of millions of Americans would have an opportunity to hear from the witnesses and to see the evidence without that filter. And I think this is really important to understand. For me, it's a, a central argument. Another argument against these hearings is that it might actually fire up Trump's base and unite the Republicans. People say, look what happened to the Republicans when they impeached Bill Clinton in the late 1990s. He came out at the end more popular than he had been at the beginning. And Democrats have to consider that possibility. What do you think about that? Well, for me, it's um, it's a superficial analogy. The, the reality is that Bill Clinton was impeached for lying about sex. I think most adults have done that at one point or another in their lives, right? Let's let's not kid ourselves. And the other factor that it's important to understand is that Bill Clinton was a very popular president. At that time, at late 1998, when they impeached him, when the Star Report came out, his approval rate was 63%. His disapproval rate was 34%. And his approval rate had only dropped below 60% in three of the 17 Gallup polls in the preceding year. Trump is a completely different story, not only on the on the matter of popularity, he is a very unpopular president, but also because these are serious matters. This is not about lying about sex. These This is about the president of the United States who is constitutionally bound 
to take care that the laws are faithfully enforced, ignoring those laws and undermining the rule of law time and time and time again. And that's a very, very different situation. The other point that I would make is that I believe that Trump's diehard cultist fans are going to be motivated regardless. And I think that what people what people need to consider is the other side of that equation and consider how demoralizing it would be for the Democratic base to be told, okay, we, we told you for two years that you needed to wait for the Mueller report to come out. And now that it is has come out and he's found abundant evidence of lawlessness, we will just sit on our hands because we are we are worried about the politics of it. And I think that is is demoralizing. I also think it would be demoralizing to have Trump tout the fact that he is he is above the law and that that the Democrats could not take him down for the next 18 months. I mean, he's going to be rubbing it in their faces. And yet only about 40 percent of Americans currently are in favor of impeachment hearings. Isn't that reason enough not to do it? Well, I would go back to the to the fact that there just aren't a lot of options for reining in a lawless president. And sometimes you have to think about the bigger picture rather than kind of short term polling realities. And and the bigger picture is that if we signal to Trump that he won't face any consequences, it will continue to get worse. And it will signal to to future presidents that as long as the other party doesn't control both chambers of Congress, they can do whatever they want and will never face consequences. I would also add that at the beginning of the process of impeaching Richard Nixon, 19% of the public supported that process. So the support for impeaching Trump is twice what it was at the beginning of, of the process with Richard Nixon. At the end of the process with Richard Nixon, when he resigned from office, and it was clear that that he would, if he did not resign, he would be voted out. The level of support had tripled to 58%. So for me, the importance of having these extremely prominent must-watch hearings is that it can shift public opinion rather than worrying about where the public opinion is right now. So the Democrats' presidential candidates should talk about how they would improve people's lives while Democrats in the House hold hearings that reveal the full extent of Trump's crimes. You can read Joshua Holland's argument for impeachment hearings at thenation.com. Joshua, thanks for talking with us today. You've convinced me. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. Now it's time to go back to the dark days of the Cold War when muckraking journalists, independent Marxists, trade union rebels, freedom riders, beatniks, and peace protesters all found a home at America's oldest weekly, The Nation magazine. That was the work of a great editor who was also a great historian, Kerry McWilliams. Now he's the subject of a great biography written by Peter Richardson. Peter teaches humanities and American studies at San Francisco State. He's the author of another wonderful book, A History of Ramparts Magazine. And he also has written the new book, American Prophet, The Life and Work of Carrie McWilliams. Peter Richardson, welcome back. Thank you, John, very much. Well, Carrie McWilliams 
went to New York in the spring of 1951 from California, where he had lived and worked. His assignment was editing a special emergency civil liberties issue of The Nation. What was the state of The Nation at that point, both the magazine and the country? Well, it was a very tough time for the magazine, and in part because it was a tough time for the country. Uh, It was really basically the beginning of what we now think of as the McCarthy era. And the nation was a punching bag in many ways for for the anti-communist right, of course, but also for the anti-communist left. And that included people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was targeting the nation magazine and the people who contributed to it and edited it. And Kerry McWilliams at that time was the West Coast contributing editor for the nation magazine. He'd been writing for the magazine for some time and very productively and prolifically. That kind of anti-communism had become standard fare on the West Coast, but it was just becoming a kind of national issue of some importance in the late 1940s. I mean, really beginning in 1946. So by the time Kerry McWilliams agreed to come from Los Angeles to New York, McWilliams was ultimately given the task of shepherding the magazine through that difficult period, which some people believe was probably the toughest decade of of that magazine's long life. And who was Kerry McWilliams when he went to New York in 1951, aside from being a contributing editor to the magazine? He had been writing extraordinary sequence of books beginning in 1939. He was based in Los Angeles at that time. He was a lawyer and litigator. He had been representing farm workers and some very difficult struggles. Really, since the mid-30s, he had been mixing journalism and book writing and legal activism. And then in the 1940s, he hit a stride as an author and wrote almost one book a year between 1939 and 1950. And these were very powerful, impactful, hard-hitting books. Um, He wrote a book on the Japanese evacuation and internment that came out in 1944 when the internment was still going on, essentially demolishing every argument for the internment. In fact, the book was so impactful that uh, it was quoted in the dissenting Supreme Court opinion that very same year, 1944. So he wasn't just writing to, you know, preaching to the choir with these books. He was taking some real risks. He was interrogated by the California Unactivities, Committee on Un-American Activities in California in secret session and executive session. The uh, transcript has never been published, but some of it is included in the book. It's extraordinary colloquy between sort of racist and, and anti-communist legislators and Kerry McWilliams. The Los Angeles Times was no friend of Kerry McWilliams. The Associated Farmers, which was the big agricultural political action group at that time, said he was agri- agricultural pest number one, worse than pear blight or boll weevil. This is when he was serving in state government. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had him on his custodial detention list, which meant that he could be rounded up in case of national emergency. Many of these positions are unobjectionable now, of course, but at that time, you know, he had to pay the wages of dissent. So moving on to the magazine, in the foreword to your book, written by Mike Davis, he says Carrie McWilliams, quote, almost single-handedly revived the muckraking tradition in American journalism, close quote. Tell us about that. 
Well, one of the things that's true of, of American uh, journalism, uh, especially in the 20th century, has been that it's, it's expensive to do real reporting. It's cheaper and more profitable to, to run opinion and analysis. And it's, that's both true for the right and for the left. If you look around, even now, if you, if you watch cable television news, for example, you'll see that there's not a lot of deep reporting going on there. They're typically taking stories out of the newspaper and then talking about that. And that was certainly true of the nation, which has never been rolling in, in dough. But when McWilliams took over, he managed to create a space for some in-depth investigative journalism in the nation. So essentially took took a magazine known for opinion and analysis and created some room for muckraking. And, you know, they had a different a variety of mechanisms for doing that. One of them is that they would sometimes turn over an entire issue, the nation comes out weekly, and just give it to a long investigative story. The person who wrote the story would then sort of turn that into a, a book. And so it sort of made sense for the for the writer, and nation didn't have to pick up the total cost for all that work. And people got a real story about something that they might not have known about before. And you know, during this time, of course, the nation was very stout defender of civil rights. They were an early critic of the our role in Vietnam. I mean, one thing that that was true at that time, it's hard to it's hard to imagine it now, was that there was almost no reporting on or oversight of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. At one point, one of the people who was who was accused of treason, essentially, of a State Department, I believe State Department bureaucrat was had charges made against him, and his lawyer asked to see an FBI file. And the federal uh, FBI director, Jagger Hoover, not only didn't furnish the file, but actually pressured the judge to convict the attorney of contempt of court for even asking for the file. So nobody outside of the FBI had really seen any of these files and the oversight, you know, the congressional oversight was very weak. And so that was the situation with the FBI. And, and yet McWilliams was able to, to uh, run investigative reports on the FBI when almost, when that was almost never happening, especially in the daily newspapers, it's a very extraordinary act for a small magazine, even a, an established one like the nation to to break that kind of story. Another example actually is when the uh, nation warned uh, or reported on the buildup, military buildup before the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. And that's kind of an interesting story because the story was later picked up by the New York Times. Later when the Bay of Pigs invasion failed, President Kennedy in a private conversation with one of the New York Times editors said, you know, you really, you really hung me out to dry on that one. And the New York Times editor said, yeah, but the story had already been reported in the nation. And Kennedy said, yeah, but it wasn't news until the New York Times ran it. So it's not just breaking these stories, as the nation did many times. It's also getting the other outlets to pick them up. And that was that amplifying effect is is the best way for magazines like The Nation to really sort of move the pile when it comes to some of these big stories. One more thing we need to talk about 
Hunter S. Thompson. McLuhan's brought along a lot of skilled young writers, partly because he didn't have much of an editorial budget. So he was, he was kind of a talent scout in many ways, trying to find people who were up and coming and wouldn't cost a fortune to run their stuff. And one of the writers he identified was Hunter S. Thompson, who at that time was living in San Francisco. He began a correspondence with Thompson, who at that point had only written stories for the National Observer, which is, you know, it was a Wall Street Journal publication long out of print. And Thompson was flattered. He also needed the work very badly, and, but he didn't really have any great story ideas. He pitched a few to, to McWilliams. They weren't very good. And McWilliams said, how about a story on these motorcycle gangs, which had come into the news uh, because of, of uh, the California Attorney General had published a report about them. And Thompson jumped at the chance. Uh, he really needed the work. It was a difficult story to do. It, it, it took a certain amount of physical courage to do it. But Thompson was just that sort of person. So he went out and rode around uh, and hung around and, and interviewed the Hells Angels, both in Oakland and in San Francisco, filed his story with the nation, which ran it. And promptly, Thompson received seven or eight contract offers from major New York publishers. So that was a good example of the way that an intervention by Kerry McWilliams could really take a fairly obscure figure, Thompson was not well known at that time, and turn him into a best-selling author. Thompson, for the rest of his life, held McWilliams in high regard, almost uniquely among the many editors that Thompson worked for. He respected McWilliams for, for the rest of his career. And would, every time he was in New York, would go by the nation's office and try to get some story ideas, which McWilliams was full of. So, Peter, how would you sum up the work of Kerry McWilliams? What's notable, I think, about McWilliams is that he produced a lot of first-rate work, journalism and books. He sponsored a lot of important work as a nation, articles by Howard Zinn, Ralph Nader, Theodore Rozak on the making of the counterculture, and so on. But he also inspired a lot of great work. For example, by Cesar Chavez, who was a big fan of McWilliams's, by Luis Valdez, who wrote Zoot Suit, also a big McWilliams fan, and also Robert Town, who uh, wrote the Oscar award-winning screenplay for Chinatown. He got the idea for that screenplay by reading one of McWilliams's books, Southern California Country, An Island on the Land, which came out in 1946. And when he discovered that, he realized you know, that he had something that he could turn into what eventually became a kind of secret history of Los Angeles. And of course, you know, probably one of the most notable Hollywood films of the second half of the 20th century. Kevin Starr, the California historian, sees McWilliams as California's most astute political observer and the single finest nonfiction writer on California ever. I want to argue that McWilliams was one of the most versatile, productive, and consequential public intellectuals of the 20th century. Peter Richardson's book about him is called American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. It's out now from the University of California Press with a foreword by Mike Davis. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. Finally, Muhammad Ali. He's the subject of a new HBO documentary, What's My Name, Muhammad Ali. It's featured on this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. Dave talks with the director, Antoine Fuqua, 
His film Training Day won an Oscar. The new film is produced by LeBron James and premieres May 14th. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.